God our Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Let us pray. Almighty God, your only Son came to earth in the form of a slave and is now enthroned at your right hand, where he rules in glory. As he reigns as King in our hearts and within your church, may we rejoice in his peace and give thanks for his justice and mercy. For with you and the Holy Spirit, he rules now and forever. Amen. Our first hymn is number 105, O God, we praise thee. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. So let us turn away from sin and turn to Jesus Christ, confessing our sin in penitence and faith with the prayer printed in the bulletin. Most merciful God, we confess that we were captive to sin and could not free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have loved you with our whole heart, neither have we loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will 
and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I declare to you as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel, and we say together, praise be to God. Followers of Jesus Christ, Jesus said, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and the apostle said, set your minds on things above. This does not mean we are to disregard the things on earth. Sometimes Christianity has, has thought, uh, Christians have thought that, that we just totally ignore and disregard everything on earth in this world, just sort of toss it to the side, and we just live for heavenly things, that somehow this false distinction between the heavenly and the earthly, and that's not what the apostle means. However, we do live in a culture that seeks after pleasure first. People today chase after the stimulation of their senses. Much of this is fueled by boredom, lack of meaning, and a loss of what transcends our life. There is beauty and virtue and the greater good of society, and of course there's God, but our culture keeps its head down and does not look up. Furthermore, our affluent society has the resources to seek after pleasure in many forms. We are rich. Even if we don't have a lot of money, we live in an affluent society that gives us access, sometimes in very cheap ways, to all kinds of ways to have pleasure. Pleasures for the body, pleasures that stimulate our adrenaline and excitement, pleasures that give us a high. Seeking pleasure has become so ingrained in our society that there are laws that have been enacted to smooth the way for us to get it. Jesus Christ has come to us and raises our hearts and minds to the things above, to the things that are greater than pleasure. The pleasures we may seek last for a moment, and they never satisfy. But the things of God do satisfy our hungry souls and give peace to our troubled minds. Pursue the things above more than the pleasures of this earth, and most of all, God, who is our greatest good. For this is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is is number 168, I greet thee who my sure redeemer art. Thank you. 
Let us bring our hearts and minds together to pray for those in need. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, you are the giver of all good gifts. You ultimately are the source of the good things that we receive, even as they come to us through secondary agents and means. You give us life and health and friends and family, comforts and peace. Truly, you do not hold back your goodness from us. And now you've given us, through faith in Jesus Christ, a place in your kingdom and grace to believe and serve you and the great gift of your Holy Spirit. Hear our prayers now as we, your children, come straight to you for our help and care and for the help of our neighbors. We ask and pray that you would make strong the church throughout the world in its life and witness to Jesus Christ. We pray that even in our weakness, may we confess you with one true faith and treat others according to the ways of your kingdom. Hear our prayers for the churches around the world. And especially we pray for the people in Syria and North Korea, in Iraq, in Egypt, Nigeria, Haiti, and the Christians who serve you there, and other places that come to mind. Hear our prayers. We pray that you would hold your church together as one people in Christ who have been baptized with one baptism and sit together at one table. Hear our prayers for church unity. We implore you for the hungry and poor in our neighborhoods, in this country, and in this world. Give us the will to share our gifts of food and clothes and money and assistance with them, and not just during this holiday season, but throughout the year. Reorder our lives and thoughts about our possessions according to your kingdom. Hear our prayers for the poor. Guide those who make and administer our laws, those who lead us. We pray for our president, Joe Biden, for our senators, Gary Peters and Debbie Stabenow, for the judges of the Supreme Court, for our governor, Gretchen Whitmere. We pray that you would let justice overcome crime and wickedness. Help us to know the gospel that transcends our politics. Do not let disordered desires and acts be condoned. We pray you would humble the mighty. Give us the grace to resist the sexual disorder that abounds in our country. And may we promote right relationships between men and women. Hear our prayers for our nation. And now look upon this congregation with your favor and salvation. Fill us with faith and hope and love as your word is heard and as we share the communion meal. Whether we are sick or healthy, poor or rich, young or old, may we be exceedingly joyful that Christ brings your kingdom into this world. And we pray for those who are sick or having some kind of trouble. We pray for Frida, Jeff and Linda, Bob and Fawn, Eduardo, for Leah's family, and for our friends, Becky, Linda's friend Judy, for Mrs. Mesner, Angie, Karen, Tom, Bob, Phil, and others we name to you in silence. Look upon them with the eyes of your mercy, comfort them with the knowledge of your goodness, preserve them from the temptations of the enemy, and give them patience under their affliction. 
In good time, we ask, O Lord, that you would restore them to health, and if their days are at an end, we pray you would keep them in Christ and bless them with what they need. Enable them to lead the remainder of their lives in faithful reverence of you and to your glory. And prepare each one of us, by your grace, for our life in this world and for our impending death. We ask you, O Lord, to make our church a place where people are instructed in the Christian faith and worship and practice. Give us the grace to go out and invite more people into this congregation. And we pray that more and more people would be converted from paganism and ignorance of the gospel and morally disordered lives and just the general acid of of secularism. Enable the presence of the church with its preaching and teaching of the good news of Jesus Christ to be a cause for the help of, of the people in the cities in which we live. For your mercy and aid we ask in the name of Jesus Christ who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. seated. Let's take a moment to prepare our hearts and minds to receive God's word this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we would ask that you would 
still our minds and quiet our hearts that we might listen attentively to your word, that we would hear it, and through your Holy Spirit it would be sealed upon our hearts that would cause us to grow in the knowledge and in obedience to Christ. Give us humble hearts and minds to receive this, your word. For we do pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our first reading comes from Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 36 to 39. Listen now to God's word. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is written into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Our psalter response then comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 67 to 79, printed in the bulletin. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the Son of God shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Our epistle reading then comes from Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 19. Again, God's word. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to, be, to anyone as obedient slaves, 
you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification." And then finally, our gospel reading comes from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, beginning in verses 31, and then I will read on to verse 46, and that 36 is printed in the bulletin. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they, will also, then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. Our text from the Gospel of Luke, it's the Psalter reading, you have it in front of you just in the bulletin, is famously called the Benedictus. It derives its name from the first word in the Latin translation of this part of of Luke. And the first word in the Latin translation is benedictus. In English, it's blessed. So our translation says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, verse 68. It's customary with the psalms and songs of the Bible to name them after the first words of the text. For example, Mary's song, which precedes our text, is called the Magnificat. 
and the song of the priest Simeon, which comes after our text, when Jesus is presented in the temple for purification, that song of the priest is called the Nuc Dimittis, now dismiss, referring to himself, your servant. And Psalm 110 is just another example. All the psalms have a name. Um, but Psalm 110 is known as Dixit Dominus. So there are these, it's been customary in the church to use a name for these psalms and songs in the Bible. The Benedictus is poetic. It's full of Hebrew parallelisms. And it is a psalm of thanksgiving. If you look in your Bibles, rather than the insert in the bulletin, you'll see that parallelism probably laid out very nicely by, with your translation. It, it didn't work that way so much with uh, our responsive reading. That's why we used it for our Psalter response this morning, even though it's not from the collection of psalms in the Old Testament. It is a psalm. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. And the Benedictus practically begs to be sung. It's one of those things that, that can be said responsibly in the church, but it, it just almost wants you to sing it. And in fact, the church has set it to choral music like the pensive version in Bach's B minor mass, which features the flute, or the Gregorian chant. It was customary in the, the days of uh, w when the church's worship was influenced by Gregory, the Pope Gregory. Um, the Gregorian chant version has the sanctus, the holy, 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 and, and all of that that comes before the Lord's Supper. And then it's concluded with the opening lines from the Benedictus. And as I looked this up, I didn't know that, but as I looked it up, I discovered there's quite a debate going on in the Catholic Church about whether the Benedictus should be separated from the Sanctus and given its own place, or if it should continue with the Sanctus, and so they're all discussing that. And then there's Rafe von Williams. I've never understood his name. It should be Ralph, but he goes by Rafe. Maybe he didn't like Ralph. Uh, Rafe von Williams, wonderful English uh, composer, and he has uh, produced a lovely choral setting for the Benedictus. The Benedictus expresses joyful praise to God for his salvation, and the church has sung it. In con its context in scripture is the birth and naming of John the Baptist, and you probably picked that up as we were, as we, as you were, as we were responsively reading it, that there's something going on here. And in, in scripture, in the context, it, it's related to the birth and naming of John the Baptist. The birth was announced to John's father a few months before the angel announced Jesus' birth to Mary. Zechariah was in the temple carrying out his duties as a priest. The angel appeared to Zechariah and terrified him, as the divine presence does. The angel comforted Zechariah, and then the angel announced that Zechariah and Elizabeth would bear a son. After instructing Zechariah how he was to raise his son, the angel told him to name his son John, John who became John the Baptist. Zechariah questioned the announcement of the birth, and the angel silenced Zechariah so that he could no longer speak in unbelief. His voice would not return until John's birth. So for approximately nine months, maybe eight months, he wasn't speaking. He was mute. Nine months later, his son was born, and Zechariah signaled that his name was to be John, and that is when his muteness was lifted, and Zechariah gave voice to the beautiful Benedictus that we heard this morning, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Those are some of his first words. The content of the Benedictus draws from the Old Testament. So you have the context for the Benedictus, which is related to the naming, the birth and naming of John the Baptist, and then you have the content 
of the Benedictus, and it draws heavily from the Old Testament. It's full of quotes and references from the Old Testament. And I'll review them with you because they're important for understanding this song. It begins, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, in verse 68. It addresses Israel's God and his history of redemption with Israel. You cannot understand the hymn of thanksgiving, this Benedictus, without knowing the redemption, the redemptive history of, God, of Israel. God promised Israel that he would send a savior according to David. And verse 69 of the Benedictus refers back to God's promise to bless Israel with a descendant of David. This promise is repeated several times in the Old Testament in, in maybe shorter versions, but it, it comes up many times, but it's given. The promise is actually given in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the Lord says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will, give you, uh, will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. God promised a king who would deliver his people, which is one reason why the Benedictus is used for Christ the King Sunday today. It's one of those texts that's, that's traditionally used for this day. Verse 71 of the Benedictus declares God's salvation in the Old Testament. The prophets of God said that he would save his people from their enemies. So where are these references? Well, one of them is in Psalm 106, which remembers that God saved his people for his namesake so that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. He led them through the deep as through a desert. What does that make you think of? The Exodus, of course, Israel coming, God leading his people out of Egypt. And then there's this line in Psalm 106 that says, So he saved them from the hand of the foe and delivered them from the hand of their enemy. It's almost exactly quoted in the Benedictus. The Benedictus describes God's salvation as his mercy. Verse 72, thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors. The characterization of God's salvation is found throughout the Old Testament, this particular kind of characterization of it, that God's salvation is merciful. He's merciful. It's stated quite clearly in Exodus when God made his covenant with Israel, and we read it in Deuteronomy chapter 4 where God says to Israel, because the Lord your God is a merciful God, he will neither abandon you nor destroy you. He will not forget the covenant with your ancestors that he swore to them. And verse 73 of the Benedictus recalls God's promise that he swore to Abraham. God made a promise to David. He made a promise to Abraham even before he made the promise to David. God swore to Abraham in Genesis 22, I will indeed bless you and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. God's promised release, he promised to release his people from their enemies. And the second part of the Benedictus, Benedictus the first part is, is all that I've just said that, that has this, this strong reference back to the history of redemption and God's, uh, God's salvation in the Old Testament. The second part of the Benedictus refers more specifically to John the Baptist, who will prepare the way for God's Savior. And it, too, has references back to God's redemptive history with Israel, and I'll point, only point them out to you. But verse 76 in the Big Benedictus refers to the one in Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3, who will prepare the way of the Lord. That's, that's actually just a quote lifted straight out of Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3. So uh, John the Baptist will be the one who will prepare the way of the Lord. And then the imagery of the divine light 
of God's servant shining on those in darkness is an image taken from Isaiah 42. I will give you as a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness, light and darkness. That imagery is coming from uh, the prophet. With the coming of Jesus Christ, the Benedictus uses what the Old Testament said about God's salvation and interprets it according to Christ. So that's an important Christian point to make, that its content is drawn from the Old Testament, but it's now understanding all of it in reference to Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament is the context, context for the salvation of Jesus Christ. Now the Benedictus helps us look carefully into the character of God's salvation. And lots of people, uh, there's so remnants of Christianity everywhere in our society, and lots of people like to talk about God and his character and salvation, and most of the time they're making it up. If you hear it out in the popular press, in our culture, um, I shouldn't say most of the time, but a lot of the time, it's, it's just their opinion. They're just making these things up. Mostly it's projection. It's what they hope God is, what they want God to be. So they, they, they sort of put that onto God and his character. Well, the Benedictus helps us look carefully at it according to how God has revealed himself. In verse, seven, in verse 68, it says God's salvation redeems us. And this is a word. The word there means ransom, release, or redeem. It can be translated any of those ways. This word indicates a payment. A payment was made that secured our release. Christian theology has reflected on what the payment was and to whom it was made. And a good orthodox answer is that Jesus earned the payment that was owed because of our sin. He earned it and he's the one that, that made it. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus uses the same root of this word and I actually preached on it several months ago. But the same root of the word, and he said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The same root for that word, ransom. Jesus made the payment that satisfies God's justice and the debt we owe. So if we go with the translation, redeem, as the ESV does, as as what we have this morning, in verse 68, the ESV says, He has visited and redeemed his people. So if we go with that translation, when you hear the word redeemed, and this is a very commercial time of the year for us, I mean, it's always commercial, but it's exceptionally commercial now. You hear that word redeemed, think, and this is a really, I wasn't going to say this, but I'll just, it's what you think of. It's a crass way of putting it, coupons. Okay, so you get your coupon that has value and you translate it, and probably nobody has ever tried to relate Christ's payment for our salvation to a coupon. <laughs> but it's, it's the analogy there. It gets you thinking about redemption. That's the way this word, what this word means, redeeming something. So you have something of equal or greater value, and you present it to, to purchase what you want, right? And so that's what Christ has done, except he presented his life and his work of righteousness to God, who was just and holy and, and, um, and righteous, and it was perfectly... Uh, Exchangeable was perfectly able to satisfy God's justice and to pay for our sin and make us righteous with God. So, redemption in that sense, and that's the word there that means securing our release. A redemption is paid, a ransom might be paid to release us so that we can be restored to God. But right now, you, you need to really focus on, even though I went on that spiel about redemption, you need to focus 
you need to hear that God's salvation is a salvation that releases us. That's such a big uh, New Testament gospel kind of image. Releases us. No longer does God hold our sin against us through Jesus Christ. Not apart from Jesus Christ. Our sin is still held against us if, if we don't have faith in Christ, if we somehow live apart from Jesus Christ. But if we live in Christ through faith and repentance in him with the church, God does not hold our sin against us. We're released from it. His salvation sets us free from sin and the devil. And there are wonderful examples of this kind of freedom in the Gospels where Jesus heals people, all those stories about Jesus healing people. And we get excited about it and talk about the miracle and everything, but perhaps we miss the more fundamental thing. It's release for those people. So when Jesus heals them, they're set free. So it was with the demon-possessed man who lived among the tombs. Jesus set him free from the power of the devil. And when the people from the town nearby found the man, came to the (coughs) graveyard, the man was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. That's what Mark says, the Gospel of Mark. No longer was he a slave to evil. He was freed to hear Jesus, and his mind was freed from all the lies and destruction of the devil. And one of the more exuberant stories of Jesus releasing a man, setting him free, and it could be a man or a woman, uh, but in this case it's a man. It's the story of the lame man at the entrance to the temple in Acts chapter 3. What a marvelous story about release. He was begging for alms. This man was sitting there. He's lame. He can't walk. He's begging for alms when Jesus' disciples saw him. And by the power of Jesus, they raised him up, and the man was able to walk. It wasn't power they had of their own. It was Jesus who raised them. And the book of Acts says, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with Peter and John, walking and leaping and praising God. And I just always picture this this uh, <clears throat> man going into the temple, John and Peter walking, you know, like we would walk, and this guy just hopping all over around them. It's a great, great image of being released. God's salvation releases people so that they may follow Christ and serve him. The Benedictus says that God's salvation rescues us from our enemies, and we're still talking about the character of God's salvation. After it declares that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us, a horn is just an an old uh, uh, um, analogy of strength. It's like the horn of an animal would be its strength if it's going to attack or if it's going to defend itself. So God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Verse 71 says that we should be saved from our enemies. This character of God's salvation goes along closely with the release he gives. You can probably pick that up easily. He rescues us from our enemies. He gives us release. Those two things go together really well. The Psalms are full of invocations to God that he destroy the enemies of the people, that he blot them out, that they fall into the Lord's trap, that God would break their teeth. Those those handful of, of imprecatory Psalms are called. Psalms of, in, of uh, imprecation would, would say all those things about the enemies of Israel. And certainly the Psalms were written while Israel was struggling under the power of Assyria and Babylon and other nations. Israel's enemies were other people opposed to them. But since Jesus has come, we must rethink who our enemies are because Jesus taught us to love our enemies, love other people who are, are our enemies. Jesus does not refer to our neighbors who oppose us. Uh, He does refer to our neighbors who oppose us and hate us. He talks about them, but he tells us to love 
our human enemies. Sometimes we must stand up to them for the sake of love. doesn't mean we become doormats, but we are not to try to crush them or blot them out, blot out our antagonistic neighbors. Jesus does not teach us to do that. However, Jesus showed us that we do have enemies that must be destroyed. So while our human neighbors, Jesus has loved them, we do have enemies that need to be destroyed. And what are they? Well, these enemies are not flesh and blood, as Paul said. They are sin, death, the devil, and evil. God saves us from our enemies. God's salvation is deliverance from those who would enslave us and try to destroy us, who, are, who would be doing that in this world? Well, namely, sin, death, the devil, and evil. And isn't it convenient we live in a culture that can deny the existence of evil and the devil? It doesn't want to talk about sin because that's a theological word. It talks about God. The only thing that our culture will talk about is death. But all those things are there, and they enslave people every day. And it's, it's so helpful to those powers to deny them, to deny that they're there. And then they can wreak their havoc, and our culture doesn't even realize how it's enslaved. There's a, a story about Herman Mendoza, who was once one of the most prominent cocaine dealers in the history of New York City. You, you've got to have quite a career to be one of the most prominent co- cocaine dealers in the history of New York City. And this is not long ago. This is like just a couple, three years ago. He was enmeshed in sin and evil. But when he heard the gospel, while he was in prison, he was caught and sent to prison. He heard the gospel, and Jesus saved him from his enemies. And what were his enemies? Well, sin and evil. The sin he was committing and the evil that he was caught up in and and perpetuating. Mendoza was transformed, and instead of selling drugs, he's now offering something more powerful to those in need, redemption in the name of Jesus Christ. Today, Mendoza serves as a leader and director of Powerhouse Kids Ministry at some place called Promise Ministries International in New York City. So he's back in the same city, but this time serving Christ. God will also bring an end to human opponents of Christ's people, so there will be an end that comes for all those who oppose Christ and his church. And it's right to pray for the end of human opposition to Christ. The early church did this as it was being attacked by Rome and and other uh, people who who were uh, trying to shut the church down. But most of the salvation from our human opponents comes by way of conversion and transformation. But with these other enemies, sin, death, devil, and evil, they will be wiped out, destroyed. And we are to uh, work for that in this world. God's salvation delivers us from our enemies. The Benedictus also says God's salvation is merciful. Verse 72 says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. God's mercy. Mercy in the Bible is a type of kindness that shows compassion. So when you, if you were to see an animal suffering, uh, hopefully, and I've done this a few times, you would go up to it and try to help it right? We have a certain sense of wanting to show mercy to that animal, and that's what we're doing. We're showing it mercy. When you talk to someone who spits out lies and ignorance about Christianity, but you're forbearing with them, and you're kind to them, then you're being merciful. By sending Jesus Christ to us, God is compassionate to us in our sin. God could have let the human race remain in its sin, and we just grind each other up in this fierce kind of competition and selfishness. 
and we could destroy ourselves by running away from God, but he didn't do this. God sent his son to us, and the scripture says, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of evil, God had compassion, mercy on us, and sent his son. God was merciful to us in Jesus Christ. And finally, the Benedictus says that God's salvation is ethical. Look at verses 74 and 75. It says that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God frees us from our enemies that we might serve him. Our whole lives are to be lived for God. And pay attention that it's a service in holiness and righteousness. And here it's talking about the moral side of conduct. Now, there's, there's the, obviously the immoral side of conduct. There's also the amoral side of conduct about whether you should go for a walk or not. That's an amoral decision. Whether to read a novel by Victor Hugo or an essay by Ronald Dworkin. Those are uh, amoral decisions. But holiness and righteousness is moral. Those kind of decisions along those, those levels are moral. Holiness is purity without sin, and righteousness is living according to God's way. It's walking in the light of Christ. The mainstream church has always said that this way is known with God's moral law. It's taught by his word and, and focused particularly with the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are rightly interpreted according to Christ's teaching. And so that's how the New Testament uses the law. Here's an example. Jesus teaches his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. Where does that come from? Well, that's the sixth commandment in the Old, in the, uh, Old Testament. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And then Jesus goes on to instruct his disciples to be reconciled to their brother before they offer their worship to God. This is the law interpreted according to Christ. The Benedictus tells us that God saves us to live an ethical life. And there's a way of living that is pleasing to God, and there's a way of living that is condemned by God, that is not pleasing to God. There is a morally right way to live one's life, and there's a morally wrong way to live one's life. And it's God who determines what that way is, not us. And he determines it based in his own being, his own character. Many Christians who want to live the way of our society make clever assertions that God endorses immoral ways of living. And sometimes they can be very, very clever about it. In regard to identity politics, they claim that God made them the way they think they are. But it is God who has given us our gender identity, which is evident in our bodies. So in other words, being male and female goes all the way down to your chromosomes and your cells. And God saves us to live ethically according to that gender. Not the gender we think we are or we want to transition into, but the gender that God has given us. We are to live ethically according to that gender. God's salvation in Christ puts us on the way that is pleasing to God. So God saves us for an ethical life. So these are the characteristics of God's salvation that the Benedictus tells us. It sets us free to serve God, it rescues us from our enemies, it's merciful to those in need, and it's ethical. Now the church has grappled with the ethical character of God's salvation, and it continues to grapple with it. Many times unnecessarily so, but it does. And there's more than one reason for this. Often it's because the immoral way of the world is strongly enticing. 
God's word actually warns us about that. First John, the, the first epistle of John, chapter 2, warns the church about love of the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And so in, in John's own language, he is telling that to the church about the dangers of loving the, the, the world and its way, ethical way of life. In the parable of the sower and the seed, Jesus says there are those who hear the word of the gospel, but the cares of the world and the delight in riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it pr- proves unfruitful. So the world entices us to live according to the ethical, to its ethical way of life and not the ethical life of God's salvation. Now it's the young in the church who often grapple the most with the Christian ethical life. They must learn the ethical life of God's salvation with the teaching of the church, and sadly many churches are not teaching it. But the young members in the church must begin to make their first moral decisions, and this can be difficult. Not because the ethical life of God's salvation is hard to know. Most of the time, it's straightforward. It's because the world puts tremendous pressure on young Christians or young people to live its kind of moral life. Celebrities in music, movies, and sports are chosen by those with moral agendas in our world to try and persuade you not to live the ethical life of God's salvation. Young people have enjoyed the music of Lady Gaga, Elton John, Queen, David Bowie. I've kind of got a kick out of some of their music as well. And all of them have supported the LGBTQ plus movement. In fact, today, it's difficult to name any musician or actor who does not speak out for it. And to make matters worse, and that's by design, by the way, if you can get the popular people that the, the, the young generation loves to listen to and looks up to and all of that, if you can get them to mimic what you want and to say what you want, you've got a lot of power. And that's intentional. They're going for people. No one's ever approached me and said, hey, we'd be a spokesman for this movement because nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> to make matters worse, there are churches that have adopted the ethical life of the world and they promote it, so that becomes confusing for young people. Why does this church say it's okay and this church says it's not? Well, let's dig back a little bit further than that and see what the church has said throughout history as it's listened to God's word and and, and what it's, it's said in its classic um, teaching. To you who are young, the Benedictus tells you that the salvation of God sets you free for the ethical life of God not the ethical life of this world. That's an important point. You are set free for the ethical life of God's salvation in Jesus Christ, not for the ethical life of this world. Do learn the ethical life of God. You've got to learn that. And if you don't feel like you're learning it enough, you know, with the teaching, you can always come and ask someone like me, the ministry of the church, whatever, to feel free to ask questions about it. It's perfectly fine. And learn the reasons for it. Because the church didn't just make this up. There are good reasons for, for the ethical life of God's salvation. And the church, when it knows what it's talking about, <laughs> knows itself, can explain those to you and give you good reasons for them. And so feel free to learn that and to ask questions and look for it. 
Young Christians grapple with the ethical life of God's salvation, but so do, so do the older members of the church. And it's, the world entices all of us with its ethical life. And sometimes there are older Christians who have given thanks for God's salvation all their life, and then suddenly they abandon its ethical life and chase after the world's immorality. And, and the rest of us sitting around scratching our heads, like, what happened? In psychology, they call these things like midlife crisis and stuff like that. And I guess men have been famous for their so-called midlife crisis. Women apparently have them too, and it just becomes a psychological way. When we're talking about Christians doing this sort of a thing, a way to to sort of explain, oh, well, it's just a thing that you you go through when you hit your 50s. Um, But when that happens, it's, it's very troubling for those in the church, to, to see older Christians who just suddenly chase after that. Well, intrinsic to God's salvation is its ethical life. It's not an optional thing. It's not something that sits on the side or, or that it's, it's the, the, the food of the week, you know, that we can just sort of pick up and take, and if we get tired of it, we put it down, and I'm still a good Christian running along following Christ. No, look, God's salvation is ethical. It has an ethical side to it. You can't separate the ethical life from God's salvation in Jesus Christ. But even if we do live, seek to live the ethical life of God's salvation, we might do it without the character of God's salvation. And this is why I spent so much time going through the character of God's salvation in the Benedictus. Because, it's, because we might seek to live the ethical life of God, and we're doing it without the character of his salvation. Reformed churches take seriously the law of God as the rule for how we live as Christians. It shows us our sin, but after we become Christians, it also shows us how we are to live. And we take that seriously. And the Heidelberg Catechism says it, best, says it best when it says we do this out of gratitude to God for his salvation for us. So in trying to use the law as a rule of life, it's, it's simply trying to live out gratitude, thanksgiving to God for what he's done for us. And we hear God's law and worship. In Reformed churches, it's very traditional to include uh, a form of God's law and worship, like the Ten Commandments or a particular commandment. A lot of OPC churches include um, a catechism question related to the law of God. Or you might hear the, the apostolic instructions. That's what we do here in the worship, here in the call to obedience. It might be a command that's elaborated from the Old Testament, but it can also, it, it very often, like it is today, it was uh, based on Jesus' words, his command, and um, the apostolic command. So it's part of our worship. The law of God comes to us through Christ, and, we, and so we hear it in a thoroughly Christian way, and it's, it's part of our worship. We want to walk before the Lord in holiness and righteousness all our days, and we take that seriously in Reformed churches. The church's doctrine keeps our ethical life centered on the grace of God. So in the Reformed church, we don't want to get off of that and think somehow this now becomes my big effort to please God or to be a good person. The church's doctrine keeps it centered on the grace of God. We firmly confess that we cannot live holy and righteous lives without the work of the Holy Spirit. And our ethical life does not earn us anything with God, right? We know that. God's obedience makes us righteous before God. Christ's obedience makes us righteous before God, not ours. Our confidence and trust is in his righteousness for our salvation, not our own. And yet, we might live the ethical life of God's salvation without the character of God's salvation. There are arrogant and smug Reformed Christians who think they have the Christian ethical life all figured out. It's all nailed down with chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession. 
And when a fellow Christian is struggling with a moral question, we might be quick to answer him or her without appreciating the complexity of the problem. The ethical life we live as Christians is to show the character of God's salvation. And in the Benedictus, that's being set free to serve God, rescue from our enemies, and mercy. So as we live the ethical life of God's salvation, we are to show that character. Are we more interested in being right and having Christian morality figured out or showing the character of God's salvation? The Christian ethical life is to be lived to help people be released from their enemies. The Christian ethical life is to be lived by showing mercy to other people. So I was reading a book, and this story came out in the book. Um, The book's written by Wesley Hill. He's a teacher in the Anglican Church over in uh, the Pittsburgh area, or he was. I think he might have moved somewhere now. But he's he's ordained in the Anglican Church. He's a teacher there. He struggles with same-sex attraction. He has for a long time. He tells a story about when he was in college and he wanted to keep his struggle a secret because he knew it was not God's will, and it was tearing him up inside. One day he took a chance and called up a pastor of a church, and after much stumbling and fumbling around, he told the pastor his struggle. He knew it was wrong, but he still struggled with it. The pastor listened attentively, and when Wesley was done, he said, Thank you for sharing this with me. I know it must be hard, and I will be here for you as you continue to struggle with it. The pastor's response made a huge impression on Wesley and helped him to continue to affirm the Christian ethical life regarding sexuality while waiting for the day when he will no longer struggle with such desires. Christian who listened to Wesley did not brush aside living in holiness and righteousness before God, but he showed mercy to him and a commitment to God's salvation rescuing us from our enemies. May God bless us to live an ethical life with the character of his salvation in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that we and your whole church may show forth the character of your salvation to the peoples of this earth, who, being divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under Christ's most gracious rule who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please stand. Let us confess our faith with the creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, Gotten of his Father before all worlds. God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and buried. 
the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn as we prepare to come to the Lord's table is number 311, Hail to the Lord's Anointed. So if we could please come forward and collect that offering. If by chance you forgot, we delayed in mailing it in so we could still bring something next week.
and mercy, receive them with our gratitude, that through us all people may know the riches of your forgiveness and love in Christ, through the ministry of the Church. Amen. We've come to the Lord's table after hearing his word proclaim the gospel presented to us in Jesus Christ. And this is the Lord's table. It's where we are met and nourished by the risen Lord and where we have true fellowship with one another as members together in his body, the church. As they were eating, these are the words of institution, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We do welcome to this table all who have been baptized, who have publicly professed their faith in Jesus Christ, and our communicant members, which is our way of saying belong to a Christian church or a member of a church, Christian church in good standing. You are welcome to come and join us at this table. You are to come to this table with a true faith in Jesus Christ, a sorrow for and willingness to turn from sin, and a determination in reliance upon God's grace to lead a godly life, that kind of life that was mentioned in the Benedictus, of holiness and righteousness and peace with your fellow brothers and sisters and with all those in, this, in our neighborhoods where we live. Christian people, today we have been reminded that Jesus that, Jesus, that in Jesus Christ, God's salvation is ethical. This day we have confessed our sins, we have received the assurance of God's forgiveness, we've heard his call to live in love. As you come to the supper, I exhort you to remember the grace that is yours in him, and strengthened by this sacrament, live the Christian ethical life with mercy to help people be set free from their enemies. And come to this meal with joy. Rejoice in Christ's sacrifice on your behalf, be strengthened by his gifts, and find you the grace you need to follow where he leads. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for his salvation and life for us in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also Lift up your hearts. We lift them out to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give thanks and grace. We give you thanks, O Heavenly King, our Father Almighty, as it is right and fitting for us so to do. You have created all things, and we serve and honor and praise your holy and beautiful name, and we raise our praise to you with the host of heaven, who forever praising you, saying, Holy, holy, holy. God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. Especially now, we remember and thank you that you sent your Son into this world, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and was born a man. In majestic obedience, he rode into Jerusalem to die on the cross, and he was lifted up from earth to heaven as the King of our salvation. From there, he continues to reign as the crucified and exalted Christ. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, you have led us out of sin and darkness and death and condemnation into the life of your new salvation, of your salvation, the new creation. We confess with your church, we come to this table with faith, and that faithful confession of your church that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. We thank you that even after Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, he did not abandon us, but he sent us your spirit 
and so he is present with us now. We ask you to bless this cup and this bread with the Holy Spirit so that we are fed by Christ and nourished by him. As surely as we taste the bread and the cup of the Lord, even so may he nourish and refresh our lives, for, refresh us for eternal life with his crucified body and shed blood. And not only us, but his whole body, the church. And so having communed with Christ and being strengthened by your grace, may we go out into the world to serve you in faith and love. Our thanksgiving we offer to you in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, and with one voice we say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread and after giving thanks and broke it. He said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. These are the good words of the Gospels when we receive this communion. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Merciful God, our Father, your Son, Jesus Christ, fed the hungry with the bread of his life and the word of his kingdom. Renew your people with your heavenly grace, and in all our weakness, sustain us by your true and living bread, who is alive and reigns now and forever, even Jesus Christ, our Lord and our King. In whose name we pray. Amen. The final hymn is number 318, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending.
you may reign with him in glory. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Allow me to bring your attention to the bulletin, the bulletin in the uh, the bulletin within the bulletin. We will have Christian education class this morning. We are in our second lesson of from Luther's Christmas book. This morning will be on Mary's visitation of Elizabeth. I invite you to stay. For that, let me see. Um, there won't, there will not be Christian Ed on Sunday after Thanksgiving. I believe that's the case with next week with folks traveling and so forth. So no class then. Um, something of importance I want to bring to your attention. The session has been um, considering for many months the um, the future of Providence. We are we are now how many years old? Twenty. We're in a, twenty-six years old. We're in a different season of life, and so we just we want to consider uh, where we are. As you'll remember, we began to talk about this um, when we were considering the possibility of a pastor's eventual retirement. Um, he's not itching to go. I keep telling him he's at the height of his powers, so <laughs> don't worry about that. But that's, that's a catalyst, among many others, that we have to consider when we think about tending to the church in our future. So we want to share our thoughts with you to bring you more directly into that conversation in two weeks' time. After worship, instead of Christian Ed, we will have um, a meeting and talk about that vision. Okay, so please be here in two weeks. Be here next week also, but especially in two weeks. Anything else? Mrs. Wilson. We will have fellowship dinner. We'll do it. We'll do it Im- immediately after worship before dinner. Thank you for that clarification. Um, there, there is no Bible study this week, but it will pick up again in two weeks. Heidi. That's a bonus. The baby. 
Thank you very much. Let's have some snacks and then come back for Christian Well, oh, We should say that the carpets were cleaned. Oh, yeah, the carpets are cleaned. It's really obvious awesome. In the narthex, uh, some places, mainly the children's room, it's better, but not perfect. Um, but anyway, um, and then there was a lot of help to pull up the chairs and everything and put them back. And so thank you for that. Alan spearheaded uh, the whole process. So, so I was going to suggest that from now on we leave our shoes at the door. <laughs> <laughs> now it gets chilly sometimes. <laughs> With that, you may be dismissed.